Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Geetika Rudra with the South Asian Journalism Association. We're here today with Somani Sengupta, whose book, The End of Karma, comes out today. Ms. Gupta covers the United Nations and was previously the New York Times' bureau chief in Dakar and New Delhi. She was born in Calcutta, emigrated to the U.S. in 1975, and graduated from the University of California at Berkeley. She is the recipient of the George Polk Award for Foreign Reporting in 2004. In her new book, Sengupta returns to India after leaving 30 years ago to find the country in a crucial transition. She examines India's complicated contemporary society through the stories of its youth struggles and aspirations. Hello, Somini. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi. Thanks very much for having me. So before we begin talking about your book, I want to talk about this New York Times article that was published two days ago about what you call the youth bulge. Um, What is that? Yeah, so the youth bulge, as I describe it, is the kind of lopsided uh, shape of the world today. There are some countries, a handful of countries, where there are a lot of young working-age people, and there are other countries, mostly rich countries, uh, like in Europe, in Japan, where the population is aging really fast. So we have this kind of global generation gap. Uh, And we've never really had that before. I mean, you know, in the past, young and old have been sort of evenly sprinkled more or less around the world. But now you're seeing Mm -hmm. many more older people in the rich world and many more younger people in the low-income and middle-income countries of the world. And India, of course, is really at the sharp edge of that because India, not only is it soon going to be the world's most populous country, it's going to overtake Mm -hmm. China in another six years, but it's already where the bulk of the world's young are, or put slightly differently, it's where we have the largest concentration of young people. So I'll just give you a a number that to me is totally mind-boggling. The number of Indians that are between the ages of 15 and 34 um, is somewhere around 420 million, which is, it exceeds the combined population of the United States, Britain, and Canada. And those are just Indians between the ages of 15 and 34. And every month, every single month, roughly a million Indians are turning 18. They're coming of age. They're registering to vote. They're joining the labor force. They're embracing the Internet. It is just um, an incredible concentration of young people. So what are the implications for the Indian government to have such a tremendously large young population? Yeah, I think, um, you know, three things. There is an enormous um, sort of staggering challenge of creating jobs. So by some mm-hmm. estimates, uh, India will have to create somewhere between 10 and 17 million jobs a year for the next several years. 
Um, mm-hmm. So that's one huge challenge. And related to that is, you know, preparing young people for the kinds of jobs that exist in the global economy. So making sure that they're healthy, making sure that they're educated, making sure that they have the right skills um, that are that are on the market. And that's really a huge challenge still for a country where, you know, 30% of all children are clinically malnourished, and many are um, are very, very poor. So that's, um, that's one challenge. The, another challenge, a related challenge, I think, is um, doing this at a time when um, India, along with other countries around the world, have pledged to save the planet and keep carbon emissions down. So Mm-hmm. It has to grow the economy in a way that doesn't increase its carbon footprint in the same way that industrialized countries did. Um, this is not going to be easy, and I think there are a lot of people who hope that um, there, you know, that young, innovative Indians will come up with some new ways to live, so we don't planet, we don't pollute the planet in the way that industrialized countries have. A third challenge is to really to ensure that the the opportunities are available to both men and women, to both girls and boys. And as you know, we can talk about this a little later. The mm-hmm. the the attitudes towards um, girls and women in many parts of India um, are not ones that foster you know, um, equality uh, across gender lines. Um, so that's, that's a related challenge. And fourth, as I talk about repeatedly in my book, is the challenge of um, free expression, free speech. Uh, how will India um, allow its young people to really be able to express themselves both online and offline, um, and the, and we will talk about this later too. This you'll see this fault line. You're seeing this fault line coming up um, even now in in recent weeks in the news. So these young people, they have they have hopes, they have dreams, they have aspirations. And a big question in your book is, what happens if these aspirations aren't met? Can they be met? Um, so can you talk? Can you explain to us a little bit about what you mean by your title, "End of Karma"? Um, for the first time, is there hope amongst like Indian youth that they can fulfill their dreams? You know, my book is really about three generations of Indians. Mm-hmm. My father's generation, which was the generation of independence, Midnight's Children. My generation. Um, which is roughly the generation of the of the emergency when, for the first time in India's history, there was a brief suspension of democracy. Mm-hmm. And most importantly, it's about this new generation, the uh, people who were raised by and large after 1991 when India's economy started opening up. And these are who I call Noonday's generation because they represent um, a, a, a India at high noon, they represent enormous aspirations, very, very high expectations. Mm -hmm. And yes, absolutely, they are uh, people who are there, they're kids who were born with one destiny, and they're trying to make another. And that is what I try to get at with the title, The End of Karma, Hope and Fury Among India's Young. 
And I was just very, mm-hmm. very, very struck by this, the um, rising aspirations, the tremendous desire to, um, you know, be someone um, other than um, other than their their father's child. By that I mean, you know, I profile a, a young man who is the mm-hmm. son of an auto rickshaw driver from Bihar, and he did not want to be an auto rickshaw driver by no means. He wanted to get into the Indian Institutes of Technology. I write about another mm-hmm. young girl who's the daughter of a presswala um, who has a press stand on the streets of um, Gurgaon, a very um, affluent neighborhood in Gurgaon. She definitely doesn't want to be a presswala nor a presswala's wife. Um, and so, I, I, you know, the characters in, in my book, the people I, I was really drawn to, are these people who are trying to make a, a hole in the fence, you know, and crawl right through to the other side. But as I also write, so, um, yeah, you know, I, I, I also write in the book that aspiration is like water. It needs a place to go when water is chal- channeled. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it goes somewhere, and it can be, um, uh, it, it, it can irrigate the fields, but when it has no place to go, it can destroy everything in its path. Similarly, mm-hmm. I think aspiration, when not challenged, when not channeled, um, can be a tremendous force of unrest. Do you think India is poised? for a moment of great social unrest? Well, because it is such a diverse society, it is such a large and vast country, mm-hmm. there isn't really one story that you can tell mm-hmm. about India. But um, I will point to something that was just in the news a couple of weeks ago, the uh, protests in Haryana. Um, these mm-hmm. were protests by the children of a, a prosperous, powerful group, a caste called the Jats, now they have um, increasingly been unable to live off the land, um, and their sons are really not able to, by and large, uh, get a foothold in the new economy. Mm-hmm. And so they have been agitating on the streets for um, uh, affirmative action benefits, essentially, set aside mm-hmm. quotas for government jobs. And this precisely mm-hmm. comes from their rising expectations. Um, they, you know, they want to be able to make something of themselves. They want to have mm-hmm. what, are, what are considered respectable jobs. Um, and they have taken to the streets and, you know, caused a bit of mayhem. So the newspapers for days were filled with pictures of cars being burned and trucks being burned and, um, you know, major roads being blocked. Uh, and this does not uh, bode well for a country that's trying to grow its economy, that's trying to draw foreign investment, um, uh, and that's, you know, that's got to persuade uh, I think investors and business people that there is law and order on the streets. So while there isn't large scale uh, unrest of one particular kind in India, you can turn to many places and see this pent up, um, bottled up energy coming out in many mm-hmm. places. So in End of Karma, you follow the stories of seven people 
um, all of whom, and correct me if I'm misspeaking here, I believe they were all born after 1991, correct? They were all either uh, or around after, or they were born a few years before, but they really came of age in um, this era um, that, in shorthand, we often call, you know, the New India. And it's essentially yeah. after the economy slowly started opening up. So for our audience who might not be familiar with this aspect of Indian history, could you explain the economic transition India went through at this time? You know, by and large, for the first um, 50 years, give or take, uh, it was a planned economy. And again, very gingerly, very slowly, uh, India started to open up its economy in 1991. Uh, fewer licenses were required in certain sectors. You know, India sort of joined the global economy a little bit more uh, explicitly. And this did not happen with one grand announcement. It happened very quietly. It happened very slowly. Um, and uh, it continues. You know, this, this transition still really continues. Mm-hmm. But I do think that it uh, not only opened up India to the, it, to the world, it also um, just wrought social change, you know, it, it mm-hmm. persuaded a lot of young people that uh, that they could do things that were different, you know, uh, and so it unleashed great entrepreneurial energy um, because, you know, you could open a business in a way that you couldn't before. You could uh, get into the outsourcing business and plug into the, the global market for, for outsourcing. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it really changed the, the trajectory that, that India was on. Your, the characters in this book deal with forces that are sometimes that are very close to home. In many cases, they're not just fighting um, societal norms or obstacle, economic or you know political obstacles, but also trying to get the support from their parents. And I wanted to talk about two characters in particular, both girls, um, Varsha and Renu, who face very different, um, who have very different responses from their parents. Could you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, Varsha is um is probably the youngest person that I that I write about. She was fourteen mm-hmm. when I met her a few years ago. And like I said, she's a daughter of a of a presswala and her family, yeah. um, this is this is what they do, this is their family business. They have a stand in Gurgaon and ever since Varsha was a little girl, she's been helping her parents. You know, she was carrying the laundry in nice, tidy bundles on her head going from door to door since she was a very little girl. She's been helping Mm -hmm. her mother with the ironing, but because she's the oldest of five children, she's also been helping her mother with the cooking and taking care of her siblings, and she's been going to school. And she's been going to school and and, um, really focusing on her studies because school is her exit ticket, you know, from from the press stand. She wants to... Uh, make something of herself, and the thing that she's really determined uh, to do, she wants to be a cop. She wants to be a police officer. And why does she want to be a police officer? Because when Varsha's a teenager, um, her uh, the whole country became um, very exercised by the the issue of violence against women. There was that horrific gang rape that um, you know everyone has heard about by now, and. 
Varsha decided that she would serve her country, that she would become a police officer, and she would help to keep women and girls safe. But Varsha's challenge was not just to do well in school, but to persuade her father that this was in the realm of possibility. And her father, while he loves her and he's her champion, he recognizes that Varsha is an ambitious, special kid. You know, he really relies on her. But he is also um, the defender of the very social norms that keep a girl like Varsha from realizing her dreams. And so he does not think that her taking the police exam is Mm. a good idea at all. Um, He wants her to get married. A little bit of education is good. She can fetch a better husband that way. But he really um, can't imagine the, the idea of his of his daughter, you know, taking charge like that. And so Varsha's story continues. Her struggle continues. She has nudged her father every step along the way. Her father did not want her to go to college, but she is now in college. Uh, and so her mm-hmm. story is really a story about a, a girl who tries to grow wings and uh, a story about a father who has to figure out if he's going to let her fly and how far. Um, you uh, you asked about Renu as well, and yes, and Renu um, <laughs> Renu wants to be the next Miley Cyrus. She, which I uh, I loved. <laughs> she was so colorful. <laughs> she, she had she has a great voice. She wants to be a singer. That's her dream. Um, and she lives in a small town outside of Bombay. And you know, she was on Facebook one day a couple years ago. On the day that uh, Bal Thakare, the Shiv Sena leader, the former Shiv Sena leader, mm-hmm. the day of his funeral procession. And there was some talk about his funeral procession on her Facebook page, and one of her friends made a comment about it, about how everyone was um, uh, making uh, too big of a deal uh, of it and shutting down the city uh, as a result. And so uh, Renu clicked like uh, on her friend's comment and wrote something else, and soon thereafter, found herself in a police station, arrested and charged with, um, you know, inciting communal um, uh, unrest. It was a a new section of the law that essentially made it illegal to uh, say things online that could cause unrest offline. Now, this really infuriated um, many Indians, um, in, largely Indians of her generation, who said, mm-hmm. you know, this is, um, this is part of what makes India a democracy. This is part of, this is why we are not like China. We are not like North Korea. This is a country where free speech is, you know, is, is enshrined in the Constitution. Sorry, the right to free speech is enshrined in the Constitution so long as it doesn't cause uh, or incite immediate violence. And so Renu became overnight a kind of mascot for this cause. Um, And in a couple of years' time, um, the Supreme Court, the case went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court overturned the law under which Renu was arrested. Now, we're sort of witnessing something very, very similar now, 
um, in Delhi with the uh, arrest of uh, the the university leader, the JNU university leader, who was charged right. with sedition. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, one thing that I loved that you did in this book was that you're able to use these characters' lives to tell these large, to, to bring light, bring into light these larger issues that are going on in India right now. So in JNU, when we had the arrest of the JNU student activists who um, were being accused of saying, who, who were being accused of sedition for, um, because they were pro-Kashmir, were inciting sort of violence against the state. Um, and I saw that as too direct, as a direct attack on free speech. Um, you write on, in the book that India makes a lot of promises of democracy, but isn't necessarily fulfilling those promises. Um, do you think that's the case with free speech and censorship in India today? I, I think this is one of the fault lines um, of India mm-hmm. today, one of the most important fault lines of, of Indian democracy today. And as you've noticed in the last few weeks since the arrest of um, Kanaya Kumar at JNU, um, you really have uh, – um, this has really sharply divided Indians, including young Indians, right? It's not like a generational mm-hmm. thing necessarily where old people think right. one thing and young people – no, I mean, this has really divided right. young people with – some mm-hmm. who are saying, um, look, this is unpatriotic speech and uh, what they call anti-national speech. Uh, they have been rallying on the streets um, uh, for this. And mm-hmm. um, uh, then there's another side that says um, there should be uh, uh the freedom on a college campus to debate ideas, including the future of Kashmir, including the uh, the death penalty. So I think this this has uh, created a really really sharp divide, and my sense is that you're going to see a little bit more of this because there are some important mm-hmm. state elections that are coming up in the next um, uh, 18 months to two years, and this kind of political division will probably work to the benefit of some politicians. Um, so it, now it has to be said that um, Kanaya Kumar was, he was released on bail, he, uh, he gave quite a remarkable uh, speech, and in the interviews that, that I saw that he did with uh, Indian television, he said something really uh, remarkable that resonated with me. He said, this is a country where the son of an Anganwadi worker, his mother works in an Anganwadi center, which is a, a government-run child care center. It's like a Head Start center. He said, this is a, this is a country that allows it, a son of an Anganwadi center to uh, come and pursue a Ph.D. at, you know, a prestigious university in Delhi. Now, I think that really speaks to the success of Indian democracy right. in in real ways. Um, that's a remarkable story for a country that, you know, was as stratified uh, as India was when it was born in 1947. What, what sort of strikes me when, you know, when I was reading your book and, and following events today is, you know, there is this, still sense of like upward mobility that's possible um 
many Indian youth today are getting an education that their that their parents didn't get, that their parents um, had to work very hard for, and were and, but were able to succeed in giving their own kids this education. Um, and yet, in the U.S. today, we see a lot of questions arise as to whether or not um, this is possible in our country. Um, a lot of parents today in the U.S. worry that their kids might not have better lives than their own lives. Um, what do you What do you think about that? No, I think I think that's right. I think that um, uh, you know inequality is being talked about in the United States in a way certainly that it wasn't uh, when I was growing up in the U.S. It's not something that you you that mm-hmm. was so much part of the political political zeitgeist. But I have to say there's this other parallel I think between India and the U.S. Um, you were talking about the the Kanaya Kumar case and and free speech. And remember, right before this, the big challenge that the government faced was um, over the the killing of a man um, by a mob uh, on suspicion of eating beef. This happened several months ago, and it really raised the question of, you know, A, will an Indian citizen be killed by a mob uh, on suspicion of eating beef, and will there be any justice done for this? you know that was that 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 kind of thing. Plus the sedition charge and and the issue mm-hmm. of free speech on campus is a moment of identity crisis. I think for for India. You know what kind of a democracy mm-hmm. is it going to be? That question mm-hmm. will have to be answered, of course, by Indians, um, and that question will no doubt be debated and fought over over the next um, um, you know over the next years. Likewise, I think. Our own country, the United States, faces an identity crisis of sorts, too. I mean, will America really ban refugees on the basis of their faith, as one presidential candidate has suggested? Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, the, the, the very idea of America is at stake. That's our own identity crisis. Um, likewise, I think the whole Black Lives Matter movement is precisely um, a, a movement that that asks um, the, the, the country to live up to its promise, you know, that all its citizens will be equal under the eyes of the law. Um, that, mm-hmm. that, so these are, I, I think, there are such natural parallels in the stories of India um, and the United States. They're both incredibly vibrant, dynamic democracies that are constantly questioning who they are and that are constantly reshaping themselves. And that's kind of, you know, that's the thing about democratic societies. They're not flat authoritarian um, states. That's what, that's what exactly. makes our countries, who, who, you know, mm-hmm. what they are. Right. And, you know, another parallel that I see is a, a big question in the election in the U.S. right now is what is the role of government in our day-to-day lives. Um, government's responsible for providing basic services, but also for protecting basic rights. Um, what do you think, or if, if maybe you can talk, you know, not of like Indian youth in general, because that's incredibly difficult to generalize, but in your experience talking to these seven people, what did you think, what are their expectations of government? Um, and the role the government's supposed to play in your day-to-day life? Yeah, I mean, that's a really, really good question, and I'll just tell you one anecdote um, that that struck me. I um, 
I remember going to uh, a, a village in uh, in Bihar a couple of years ago, and I went out with a uh, a nonprofit group called Pratham. They do these assessments of what children are learning in school, and they went out to a village, um, and I was just you know trailing them. And I remember in the morning, early in the morning. The mist was just rising from the field. It was a cold, crisp, bright morning, and all these children were rushing to school. Like hundreds of them were rushing to this tiny two-room schoolhouse, and there was there were no there were not enough chairs or benches or or anything like that for all these kids. And so they brought these rice sacks, these empty rice sacks, to mm-hmm. flatten out and sit on. And they sat on the porch in front. They sat on the on the yard in front of the school. There were, I think, four or five teachers who were supposed to be there teaching them, but I think only half of them showed up on time. And the kids were sort of trying to read from their books, and they all had kind of different textbooks. And um, and that year, and in successive years, when Pratham, this national um, group, measured what children were actually able to do, they discovered that in fifth grade, children who had gone to government schools, uh, public schools, for five years, they were, Mm -hmm. half of them were not able to read a second grade textbook. Half of them were not able to subtract. That is a basic government service. Um, the expectation that if you send your child to school, especially if you haven't been, if you're a mother who hasn't been to school herself, you don't really know what your child is supposed to be learning. And millions mm-hmm. and millions of Indian school children today are first-generation learners. They're the first in their families to go to school, and their parents are neither able to help them with their homework, nor are they really able to um, hold the schools accountable yet, you know, for for what Mm -hmm. their children should be learning. And I remember the social worker who took me there at the end of that morning, he just was so dejected and so frustrated. He said, you know, when these kids grow up, they will curse us. They will say, every day we came to school and we learned nothing. Wow. You know, that's just a basic government yeah. basic government service. And so the same could be said for things like um, a, a primary health center, uh, you know, whether it has basic medicines or not, whether uh, people have clean drinking water. I mean, I've been out to um, very remote villages, actually not even that remote, like maybe two or three hours drive from a from a main city, and I've seen villages where, you know, there are no functioning water wells anymore, let alone functioning schools or, or roads. Um, there's no electricity. There is, um, there's there's no real police service. These are precisely the areas, these kinds of villages, these are precisely the areas where uh, the Maoist insurgency has really blossomed in this, uh, in this prospering time in India's history. And um, one of one of the people I write about is, um, is, is precisely a young woman from one of these communities, uh, a village in West Bengal, who uh, kind of grows up to 
unexpectedly becomes uh, a killer. Um, and she grows up to be mm-hmm. a commander of a Maoist squad and uh, then decides to leave. She decides to leave the rebellion, and that's when I found her. You know, she had, uh, she had surrendered. And, uh, uh, and I think, uh, you know, her story was the story of a, of a young woman who uh, grows up in a part of the country where the government really doesn't deliver even the basic, basic services that its citizens expect. You know, we just got a question from a listener named Alka. Um, Alka writes, I left India in 1987 and have not been back as much as I'd like, but I'm struck by listening. It's my, or she writes, it's my, I'm struck by this feeling that it doesn't seem that a lot of young people are looking to leave India anymore. Um, is that true? Uh, and I think, and I, you know, not, you know, I, I want you to answer this question, but it is my sense as well that, you know, this idea that you must leave the country in order to make, to fulfill your aspirations or to get any sort of economic success, it's my impression that young people in India no longer feel that they have to leave in order to, you know, make a livelihood. Yeah, I mean, you know, in a country of 1.2 billion, it's really, it's impossible for me to, to generalize. Um, Indian students um, certainly are coming to uh, universities in the United States and elsewhere. Many of them are going back to, um, you know, to start a business or to mm-hmm. uh, to work in an Indian organization. Um, but also because it is the, you know, the second most populous country, and because it's so young. It also is not surprising that India has the largest diaspora in the world, um, and it's right. grown very, very fast. So there are 16 million Indians today who are mm-hmm. um, uh, who are out in the world. So they're, they were born in India, but not living in India. They're living somewhere else. Um, that would count me. You know, I'm an American citizen, but I was I was born in India, so I'm part of this diaspora. Um, and that number, that 16 million number, it's uh, it's it's double what it was um, a generation ago. So, in sheer numbers, uh, people are very much still leaving. They may not be gone forever, though. You know, I mean, some of them may may go back. Um, that, you write in the book, and and I also know this from you know anecdotally. India seems like India just seems to have a very complicated relationship with NRIs and um, maybe some of our listeners aren't quite sure what an NRI, a non-residential Indian, um, what that sort of the place that has in like the Indian, Indian thought. Um, it's, I think that it's non-residential Indians have like a unique relationship to India or India has a unique relationship to its expats that perhaps other countries don't have. Um, do you think so? Well, the best it, like, line that I heard um, when I was there is that NRI could also stand for not required Indians. And <laughs> by that, um, what the person who told me this, what she meant by mm-hmm. that was that, you know, India had done just fine in all the years that we were not there. And she's perfectly right. Um, so, uh, yeah, so NRI is not just non-resident Indian, but also in the view of some non-required Indians. Um, 
Those the NRIs. I mean, at a um, at a very basic level, the remittances that um, NRIs send back to India are very substantial. They're very important mm-hmm. for their communities, and um, you know, they're it's the largest um, chunk of remittances that any diaspora sends back uh, anywhere to any country. And by and large, those are those are not people. Um, in the United States, although it, it does include some Indians in America, but it really it refers to the Indians who are working in the Middle East, in the Gulf, um, and sending back a lot of money back home. So in that yeah. sense, um, the, the NRI remittances are extremely important to the economy. Oh, so, you know, I have a lot so much more to talk about, but in our final 10 minutes, I really do want to ask you a little bit about um, your reporting process, because I think that's of a huge interest to our listeners. Um, so as we've like made very clear, it's impossible to generalize. Um, there's just so many. India, India's youth population is like the equivalent to, I'm sorry, what, what was the figure? Oh, it's uh, the 15 India's- to 34-year-olds, if you count that yeah. block. Um, which is really like a sort of working age or soon-to-be working age population, That's, uh, that number is 420 million, which exceeds the combined populations of the United yes. States, Canada, and Britain. <laughs> it's mind-boggling. It's totally so, mind-boggling. It, that, that scale is so hard to comprehend. But out of this 420 million, what we have in this, in this book are seven. Um, how did you meet them? How did you find them? Yeah, so you know, I went um I went to India, went back to India exactly 30 years after I left. I went back in 2005 um as mm-hmm. the bureau chief for the New York Times and I really was kind of almost immediately struck by how young the country was. Mm-hmm. Um I was also a little um <laughs> I was also struck by how often Everywhere I went, at a nail salon, at a cafe, um, at the supermarket, I would be referred to as auntie. And I did not think of myself as an auntie. But, of course, by Indian standards, <laughs> I am sort of an auntie. Um, so, I, uh, so I was there as the bureau chief for, for several years. And then um, I started reporting the book after I, I finished my assignment. And uh, Anupam, there's one one person who I write about, um, who I met while I was a reporter, uh, and I wrote a story about him when he first got into the um, Indian Institute of Technology. But other than that, all of the people who I found, um, you know, I found after I I finished my assignment, and some of it involved um, uh, quite complicated, you know, trips. In, into the bush, like for example, to find the the young woman who I uh, I just described, the one who became a, mm-hmm. a Maoist commander. I mean, I just remember going to a small town, getting off at the train station, uh, agreeing to get on the back of a motorcycle of a young fixer who I had never met before. Him taking me and dropping me at some little town, you know, uh, uh, like a little motel in some faraway town where I was supposed to wait for a day where some other person would come and take me on the back of a motorcycle to some other place, you know, and ending up in villages where I would try to talk to people about the Maoist insurgency and they'd be like, nope, 
nope, we've never seen them here. Nope, they don't, they're not here. Well, where are all your young men? You'd like go to these villages. There was all these young older people and little children and mm-hmm. you know a few scattered women. You'd be like, well, where are the young men? And they'd shrug and they go, oh, they've gone to uh, dig wells in Tamil Nadu. Um, and then you'd go to the next person. They go, yeah, 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 that's right. They've all gone to dig wells in Tamil Nadu. I mean, no one really wanted to talk to a stranger about <laughs> this insurgency because they it was too dangerous, you know. They didn't yeah. know who was who and who would snitch on who. And, um, you know, if you said, oh, yeah, the guy two doors down, you know, yeah, he's a commander for the for the Maoists, you know, then you, you never know, like, that night, w- when I left, you know, the Maoists would come and beat you up or do something worse. So um, it was it was difficult reporting. It was difficult to find uh, many of these people. But also, I got to say, like once I um, once I got kind of close to some of them, like Varsha, the daughter of the Presswala, you know, I went back to her over and over again over several years and. Uh, you know, really saw her growing up and really saw her um, becoming mature. And, um, you know, I'm just very grateful that that she and others have let me into their lives um, and let me ask questions um, again and again and again. It's it's not easy to be at the receiving end of a, of a serious <laughs> journalist. Um, so... I am I am grateful that uh, that people have opened up and let me into their lives. Yeah, how long was the reporting process? It depends on who um it depends on the person, you know. So for, you know, Anupam mm-hmm. I'm now known for 10 years, the the young man who went to the IIT. Wow, yeah. Um Varsha I have followed uh, for about 4 years, 4 or 5 years. Um mm. and I I left India in um, at the beginning of 2012, and I but I have kept I kept going back for a couple of years, and then last year I decided um, my notebooks were full. I just had to finish writing, so um, I did not go back um, in 2015. I used most of that year to just uh, to just write. Yeah, that's such a crucial point for I think any reporter, any journalist. When do you stop? asking questions and when do you just start writing? (laughs) Um, Was that hard um, for you? I have to say my mantra on that is um, Mm -hmm. for whether it's a newspaper story or a magazine story or a book chapter, just report, 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 report. You know, keep reporting. Do not be convinced that you know the story um, because the story can surprise you and keep yourself open to how the story might change. Um, because these are, you know, if you're writing about real people, they're they're real people. They will, you know, we're all surprising, um, and we cannot be straw men and straw women, you know, to mm-hmm. fit one storyline. Um, so, uh, you know, my again, my approach is to just report the hell out of something. Um, Mm-hmm. But you know, yeah. At some point, you do have to push the button and <laughs> file your story. <laughs> but your story will be better if you've overreported. No question. So you know, in our last minute, just again, thank you so much for 
joining us today. Again, The End of Karma, Hope and Theory Among India's Young comes out today. So um, go to your local bookstore and pick up a copy. I want to leave on one on one note, which is you you said before that this really is a story of three generations. It's your parents' generation, your generation, and your daughter's generation. Um, what kind of India do you hope for your daughter? Mainly I hope for a country that pays attention to its daughters better than it has in the past. Thank you. Again, well, thank you so much. Um, again, pick up a copy of The End of Karma. It's out today. Um, so many, thank you so much. This was such a great um, hour. Thank you for having me. I really uh, enjoyed it, and good luck. All right. Thank you. Um, enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks. See you. All right. Bye now.